0: section 10 of roman history the early empire by william Wolfe capes this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter four claudius a d forty one to fifty four part two claudius had little taste for military exploits yet once it was thought prudent to excite his martial ardor that he might have the pleasure of a real triumph like the commanders of old days At the crisis of a campaign in Britain, when the preparations had been made for victory, the general sent to summon Claudius to the seat of war. All had been done to make the journey pleasant. The carriage even had been specially arranged to make it easy for him to while away the time by the games of dice which he loved so well. And though the waves and winds were not so complacent or so regardful of his comforts, he reached at last the distant island, in time to receive the submission of the native princes and to be hailed as emperor on the battlefield. Meanwhile the freedmen reaped their golden harvest, having early agreed upon a common course of action. They divided the spoil without dispute. They trafficked in the offices of state, bestowed commissions in the army, and sold the verdicts of the law courts, and put up the emperor's favor to the highest bidder one privilege which millions craved the citizenship of rome was above all a source of income to the favoured freemen who could get their master's signature to any deed he has indeed in history the credit of a liberal policy of incorporation and speeches are put into his mouth in which he argues from the best precedents of earlier days in favour of opening the doors to alien races It may be that his study of the past had taught him something, but it is likely that the interest of his ministers did more to further a course which in their hands was so lucrative a form of jobbery. It was a common jest to say that the market was so overstocked at last that the franchise went for a mere song. But these, after all, were petty gains, and they needed a more royal road to wealth. They found it in a new kind of proscription. They marked out for death and confiscation those who had houses or gardens which they coveted, made out the rich men to be malcontents, and the city to be full of traitors. It was easy to work upon the emperor's fears, for he had always been an abject craven, and was always fancying hidden daggers. A telling story, a mysterious warning, or a dream invented for the purpose, almost anything could throw him off his balance and make him give the fatal order. Nor did they always wait for that. One day a centurion came to give in his report. He had, in pursuance of his orders, killed a man of consular rank. Claudius had never known of it before, but approved the act when he heard the soldiers praised for being so ready to avenge their lord. When the list was made out in later times, it was believed that thirty-five members of the Senate and some three hundred knights fell as victims to the caprice or greed of the clique that governed in the name of claudius many of them without any forms of justice or at best with the hurried mockery of a trial in the palace so fatal to a people may be the weakness of its rulers it was noticed as a scandalous proof of his recklessness and bloodshed that he soon forgot even what had passed and bade the very men to supper whose death warrant he had signed and wondered why they were so late in coming. The guilt of these atrocities must be shared also by his wives. Of these Claudius married several in succession, but two especially stand out in history for the horror of all times. Messalina's name has passed into a byword of unbounded wantonness without disguise or shame. Her fatal influence ruined or degraded all she touched, the pictures painted of her in old writers give no redeeming feature in her character no single unselfish aim or mental grace nothing but sensual appetites and a form of clay her beauty gained her an easy command over her husband's heart but not content with that her wanton fancy ranged through every social order and shrank from no impure advances some whom she tempted had repelled her in their virtue or disgust But her slighted love soon turned to hatred, and on one false plea or other she took the forfeit of their lives. For she had no scruples or compunction, no shrinking from the sight of blood, and pity, if she ever felt it, was with her only a mere passing thrill, a counter-irritant to other feelings of the flesh. The Roman Jezebel coveted, we read, the splendid gardens of Lucullus, and to get them had a lying charge of treason brought against Valerius Asiaticus, their owner. His defense was so pathetic as to move all those who heard him in the emperor's chamber, and to make even Messalina weep. But as she hurried out to dry her tears, she whispered to her agent who stood beside that for all this the accused must not escape. For a long time she was wise enough to court or humor the confederates of the palace and so far her course of crime was easy. At last she threw off such restraints of prudence, turned upon Polybius, who had taken her favours in too serious a mood, and rid herself forever of his ill-timed jealousy. The other freedmen took his fate as a warning of defiance to them all, looked for a struggle of life and death, and watched their opportunity to strike. The chance soon came, for Messalina cast her lustful eyes on a young noble and did not scruple to parade her insolent contempt for claudius by forcing Silius to a public marriage it was the talk of the whole town but the emperor was the last to know it then narcissus saw the time was come and though the rest wavered he was firm in concert with his confidants he opened the husband's eyes and worked skilfully upon his fears with dark warnings about plots and revolution prevented any intercourse between them lest her wiles and beauty might prove fatal to his schemes and at last boldly ordered her death while claudius gave no sign and asked no question she died in the gardens of lucullus purchased so lately by the murder of their owner the emperor soon after made a speech to his guards upon the subject bemoaned his sorry luck in marriage and told them they might use their swords upon him if he ever took another wife but his freedmen knew him better, and were already in debate upon the choice of a new wife. Callistus, Pallas, and Narcissus each had his separate scheme in view, and the rival claims broke up the old harmony between them. The choice of Pallas fell on Agrippina, the daughter of Germanicus, and niece of Claudius. Married at the age of twelve to Gnaeus Domitius Ahenobarbus, a man of singular ferocity of temper, she had brought him a son who was to be one day famous she had been foully treated by caligula her brother and banished to an island till his death recalled by claudius she learnt prudence from the fate of the two julii sister and cousin who fell victims to the jealousy of messalina she shunned all dangerous rivalry at court and was content to exchange her widowhood for the quiet country life of a new husband one of the richest men in rome who dying shortly after left domitius his heir and gave her back her freedom when the time was come for her to use it her first care was to gain a powerful ally at court she found one soon in pallas who was as proud and ambitious as herself and she stooped to be the mistress of a minion while aspiring to be an emperor's wife when pallas pleaded for her to the council-chamber where the merits of the different claimants were long and anxiously discussed she did not spare to use her feminine wiles upon the weak old man by right of kinship she had a ready access to the palace and could lavish her caresses and her blandishments upon him the fort besieged so hotly fell at once and she was soon his wife in all but name for a while he seemed to waver at the thought of shocking public sentiment by a marriage with his niece but those scruples were soon swept aside by the courtly entreaties of the Senate and the clamor of a hired mob. Agrippina showed at once that she meant to be regent as well as wife. She grasped with a firm hand the reins of power, still relied upon the veteran statecraft and experience of Pallas, and maintaining with him the old intrigue, broke up the League of the Confederates. The feminine rivals whose influence she feared were swept aside by banishment or death, lalia above all had crossed her path and seemed likely to carry off the prize she did not rest till the order was given for her death and a centurion despatched to bring her head then so runs the horrid story to make sure that the ghastly face was really that of the beautiful woman she had feared and hated she pushed up the pallid lips to feel the teeth whose form she knew then she felt that she was safe and received the title of augusta from the senate she had the doings of her court reported in the official journals of the day and gave the law to all the social world of rome two children of claudius by messalina britannicus and octavia stood in the path of her ambition of these the latter was at once betrothed to her young son who was pushed forward rapidly in the career of honours ennobled even with proconsular authority and styled prince of the youth even in his seventeenth year meantime the star of the young britannicus was paling and men noted with suspicion that all the trusted guards and servants of the boy were one by one removed and their places filled with strangers of the freedmen of the palace narcissus only had not bowed before her with gloomy look and ill-concealed suspense He still watched over his patron and his children. His strength of character and long experience gave him a hold over his master that was still unshaken, and Agrippina did not dare to attack him face to face. But his enmity was not to be despised. He had sealed the doom of one wife. He might yet destroy another. There was something to alarm her also in the mood of Claudius, weak dotard as he was, for strange words fell from him in his drunken fits, coupled with maudlin tenderness for his own children and suspicious looks at nero there seemed no time therefore to be lost and she decided to act promptly she seized the opportunity when narcissus was sent away to take the waters for the gout and while his watchful eye was off her she called to her aid the skill of the poisoner locusta and gave claudius the fatal dose in the savoury dish he loved Scarcely was he dead when Seneca wrote for the amusement of the Roman circles a withering satire on the solemn act by which he was raised to the rank of the immortals. In a medley of homely prose and lofty verse, he pictures the scene above, at the moment of the Emperor's death. Mercury had taken pity on his lingering agony and begged Clotho, one of the three fates, to cut short his span of life she tells him that she was only waiting till he had made an end of giving the full franchise to the world already by his grace greeks and gauls spaniards and britons wore the toga and only a few remnants were still left uncared for but at length she let loose the struggling soul then the scene shifts to heaven jupiter is told that a stranger has just come hobbling in a bald old man who wagged his head so much and spoke so thick that no one could make out his meaning, for it did not sound like Greek or Roman or any sort of civilized speech. Hercules, as being used to monsters, is deputed to ask him whence he comes, and he does this as a Greek in words of Homer. Claudius, glad to find scholars up in heaven who may perhaps think well of his own works of history, caps the quotation with another about a journey made from Troy, and might have imposed on the simple-minded God if the goddess fever had not come up at the moment from the roman shrine where she is worshipped and said that he was only born at lugdunum in the country of the old gauls who like himself had taken the capital by storm claudius in his anger made the usual gesture by which he ordered men's heads off their shoulders but no one minded him any more than if they had been his own proud freedmen so remembering that he could not strut and crow any more on his own dunghill he begs hercules to befriend him and to plead his cause in the council-chamber of the gods this he does with some effect and when the debate opens most of the speakers seem inclined to let claudius come in but at length augustus rises and with energy denounces his successor who had shed so much noble blood like water and murdered so many of the family of the caesars without a trial or hearing His speech and vote decide the question, and Claudius is dragged away to Hades with a noose about his throat, like the victims of his cruelty. As he passes on his way through Rome, his funeral dirge is being sung, and he hears the snatches of it which mentioned in his praise that no one ever was so speedy on the seat of judgment, or could decide so easily after hearing one side only, or sometimes neither and that pleaders and gamblers would keenly feel the loss of a monarch who had loved so much the law-court and the dice-box. The spirits in Hades raise a shout of triumph when they hear that he is near, and all whom he had sent before him throng about him as he enters. There they stand, the intimates, the kinsmen he had doomed to death, the senators, the knights, and less honoured names, as countless as the sands on the seashore, and silently confront the fallen tyrant. But Claudius, seeing all the well-known faces, forgetting as he often did in life, or even ignorant of the causes of their death, said, Why, here are all friends. However came you hither? Then they curse him to his face, and drag him to the chair of Aeacus, the judge, who condemns him unheard, to the surprise of all, save the criminal himself. After some thought, a fitting penalty was found. Claudius was doomed to play for all eternity with a dice-box that had no bottom. End of section 10